Don't worry, I'm coming. Forgot a prop. How you guys doing? Good, good. Man, what a morning of worship, amen? Ah, well, we are spending the next few weeks, we're not really in a series right now, um, but we are kind of following a theme. We're leading up to Easter, so we're going to spend the next three weeks leading up, up to Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, in John chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to start reading in verse 1. And over the next three weeks, we're just going to walk through John 13, which is the last supper narrative in John's gospel. So this is the last meal Jesus ate with his disciples before his death and his resurrection. John chapter 13, this is a familiar text. You might have heard it before if you grew up in church. But I always like, I always like to point this out. If you didn't grow up in church and you didn't grow up with this text, you have a unique perspective. You get to hear this for the first time with fresh eyes instead of hearing this with years and years of the same thing over it again. Sometimes when we hear things so many times, we can kind of get blinders. It can hit us like, like information we already know and we miss the fresh thing that God wants to speak through it. So no matter where you're at this morning, I think this is going to be a helpful story. So John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says... It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the privilege to gather with your people and study your word. God, let your name be the only name remembered this morning. Let your truth be the only thing that our minds and our hearts rest on. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Baking with Clifton. I'm your host, Clifton. Some of y'all didn't know that's what the C stood for, did you? I'm going to let you calibrate while I adjust my monocle. It's a bummer to be named Clifton and not be the Duke of anything. I just... But any, any of you bake? Anybody here bake? 
Okay, I do not bake at all. This is a pizza dough that my wife made last night for this illustration. I'm really more of like a uh, smoking meat, grilling type of thing, which for the record, if you like pizza and you have a smoker and you have yet to put your pizza on the smoker, you are not living yet. Okay, you got to try that. So this is a pizza dough. So um, some of you could probably do this way better than I could. But this is all the ingredients, you know, salt, olive oil, yeast, flour, a little bit of sugar, all the basic things that go into a pizza dough, right? So you need it, you lay, you lay it out. Now, we can get creative with pizza dough. All it takes is a little imagination and some basic kitchen ingredients to turn this pizza dough alive. All right. So I want to make this interesting, right? We want to change the flavor. We don't want just basic pizza dough. I actually can't eat this. This is not gluten-free pizza dough. But anyway, um, we're, we want to... We want to make this interesting this morning. All right, so I've taken the, the best spice. If you don't have smoked paprika in your cabinets, then come on, what are you doing? Smoked paprika is the secret ingredient to everything. I mean, you could put this in a pie, and it would still be good. So you just, just put a bunch of that on there. Yep. And then a little garlic powder, because everything needs garlic powder. Amen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got to keep the vampires away somehow. All right, so you put some of this. Now, now. What you can do is you just kind of fold, fold that into the dough, right? So now you're incorporating that flavor. Now, you don't want to overwork the dough, right? You don't want to, you don't want to get like a, like a pizza dough that doesn't rise. You want it to be fluffy and everything. But you do. You want to fold it and press it, fold it and press it a couple of times because that's going to help all that flavor that you put in there be really incorporated in, Right? So if you incorporate that flavor into really every corner of the pizza dough, then you're taking what might be kind of a boring thing, you know, just a normal thing, and all of a sudden it's alive, it's bright, it's interesting, right? Amen? You guys feeling the spirit? Yeah. So you, t- you take that, and you fold those ingredients in, and if you had mozzarella cheese, or if you had, like, garlic cloves that you could dice up, whatever, you, you can get really creative with a pizza dough. Now, wouldn't this be a great illustration for a sermon about how Jesus is the missing ingredient to your life, right? You're living a boring pizza dough life, but Jesus is the smoked paprika. When you incorporate him into every corner of your life, man, things really awaken, right? That, that's, not, that's not this sermon. Don't worry. Because here's the thing. Within reason, no matter what ingredient, no matter what flavor I add to this, it's, it's still a pizza dough right? Like now this is maybe more flavorful pizza dough. This is smoky paprika garlic pizza dough now, but it's still pizza dough, right? If, if I want something different, I've got to change the whole process. I've got to throw it out and make something new. Here's what I want to offer you this morning. There are a few things that I want to say, but the first thing is this. We have, I believe, a toxic, endemic issue in the modern church. And I'm using strong language there on purpose. I know that's a little bit heavy-handed, but I believe this is deadly. I believe this has infiltrated every corner of our culture. And it's the idea that Jesus, that the way of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus are some sort of ingredient that I can fold into my life to get a Christian result. 
that I have these things that I'm already making, that I'm already pursuing, and that Jesus gives me good advice. Jesus gives me and maybe a slightly different way of thinking, that if I just apply to my life, then it's going to help me more effectively accomplish the goals that I'm pursuing. It's going to help me more effectively get what I want out of life. I think this is why we look at the world around us and we see Christian versions, Christian versions in air quotes, of everything else. We've got politics and we've got Christian politics. We've got power and we've got Christian power. We've got empires and brands, and we've got Christian brands. We've got greed and hoarding wealth, and we've got Christian greed. And this morning, friends, I've got to tell you, if the result, if the thing that you are making with your life will ultimately be unfulfilling, because I believe cover to cover of Scripture, we are taught that pursuing power, pursuing wealth, pursuing comfort, pursuing resources is unfulfilling. So if what you are making with your life is unfulfilling, the Christian version will just be Christian unfulfilling. It will just taste a little bit like Jesus, but still leave you wanting. So John chapter 13. Anytime we come to scripture, this story specifically, there are a couple things we need to keep in mind when we approach the text. The first is that the Bible is inspired. It is the authoritative, completely trustworthy, true word of God, but it is inspired through people. So God used people that were in a specific culture, that were in a specific context, that had personality and used literary tools and had their own creative ways of writing to write scripture. And God inspired that, so the creative process is inspired as well. What that means is that when John got to the anecdote in his letter about the Last Supper, that he wasn't just giving us a play-by-play -play of what happened. The point of him telling this story was not just to tell us exactly what happened at this supper. He was arranging things in a specific way. He said this thing in this place to highlight this specific thing in the life of Jesus or this specific character trait in Jesus. He's doing very intentional things as he's crafting this story because he wants us to notice certain things. And because we trust that the Holy Spirit inspired scripture, we trust that those are the things the Holy Spirit wants us to see in the word as well. Now, people who study this would, would agree, scholars would agree, that John, compared to all of the Gospels, the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. They're the narrative accounts of the life of Jesus. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptics. Synoptic basically means similar. What that means is that these are the Gospels that tell basically the same stories in basically the same timeline, but for different, from different perspectives, making different points, because they were written by different people, who had different perspectives and different creative process and used different literary devices. So they're highlighting different things. John is not a synoptic gospel. He tells different anecdotes and highlights different things from the other three gospels. And scholars agree that John has the highest Christology of any of the gospels. What that means is that the gospel of John is specifically and intentionally focusing on the divinity of Jesus. 
John doesn't want you to just know that Jesus is Savior. He doesn't want you to just know that he is a miracle worker. But he wants you to know deeply that Jesus is God, that Jesus is glorious and majestic. He wants his description of Jesus to point you to worship over and over again. It's a high Christology, a high view of the divinity of Christ. All of the Gospels focus on the divinity of Christ, but John emphasizes it intentionally. There's something else that scholars tend to agree on about John, and that's that John was Jesus' closest earthly friend. In fact, next week we're going to get a few verses ahead, and you will read that John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a little braggy, but it's in the Bible, so we'll let it go. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and it actually says that the disciple who Jesus loved was reclining against Jesus at dinner. So John was cuddling with Jesus at dinner. It's in the Bible. That's what it is. Let's just move on. But it's in there. He was his closest earthly friend. So when John is telling you about Jesus, he's not just telling you about God, and he's not just telling you about the Savior. He's telling you about his friend Jesus, who is God and deserves glory. Do you see that difference? Do you see why that matters? John is introducing us to his best friend. The book of John is intimate. It shows us relational things that we don't necessarily see in the other Gospels. And it's worth noting that the highest Christology, the book that focuses the most on the glory and power and majesty of Jesus, came from the perspective of an intimate friend. Why? Because the best way to know the power and glory and majesty of Jesus is through intimate friendship with him. Closeness with Jesus will never lead us away from worship. It will always lead us to be enraptured by the glory and goodness of God. The closer we get to him, the more powerful he seems. So John starts this narrative telling us about Jesus' friend with this high Christology, and he says something that frames the entire rest of the story. He says, having loved his own who were in the world. So John designates that this specific instance is not about the salvific act on the cross. All right, This isn't Jesus showing his love to all people like he did on the cross, that what's about to happen was something Jesus did specifically for those who who were his in the world, for his disciples. He did something specific here to show the 12 disciples his unique love, the way that he loved them. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what's about to happen is a significant moment of love. It tells us something about the love of Jesus. Then John goes on, and he contrasts two things. And we can't miss this. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That he had come from God and that he was going to God. John makes it clear that Jesus knows his own authority. He knows his own power. And then it says, so he got up from the table took off his outer garments, put on a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. He knew his power, so he washed his disciples' feet. Let me put that in different language. Because Jesus knew the power that he had, he washed his disciples' feet. John wants us to know 
that the, the, the washing of his disciples' feet is the response of Jesus to his power. The right use of power is to serve. Now, you might know about foot washing. You might be familiar with that. In case you're not, foot washing in, in this culture was the job of the lowest servant, okay? And we might think of that kind of like intern work or like new guy in the office work, maybe like the kind of stuff that you put in the time so you don't have to like do that job anymore. It's a little bit more than that. This was a, this was a shame and honor society. In other words, your status was built on people's respect for you. And there were certain things that if you were an honorable person that you just never did. Foot washing was one of them. In this culture, everybody wore sandals, everybody walked. If you didn't walk, you rode a horse or a donkey that pooped in the streets, so everybody else walked in it. Foot washing was disgusting. But it was also customary. When you went into someone's home, if you went into a wealthy person's home, they would have a servant, but usually the lowest servant, the lowest ranking, the least honorable person in the household would have the job of washing feet really as a sanitary practice to prepare for the meal. This was a shameful job. I cannot exaggerate too much how someone in Jesus' position, a teacher and a Lord, would not and should not take the shame of foot washing upon themselves. This is why Peter reacts the way he does. Peter's not like, bro, my feet are gross. Peter's like, you will never wash my feet. You won't. Because somebody like you isn't supposed to do this. Peter is reacting to the power of Jesus, and he's saying somebody with power isn't supposed to behave this way. This isn't how the world works, Jesus. We've got servants for this. But Jesus responds to his power by serving. Now, I've, this, is, this is a text that if you grew up in church, you've heard it a bunch of times. I've been preaching for 10 years now. I've preached this sermon before, and every time I've, I've studied this text up until this point, I assumed that that the act of love that John was talking about was just the act of foot washing, that this was just an extravagant expression of love. This was like the rose petals on the ground or the fireworks in the sky at the engagement. It was just like the extravagant extra show of God's love. You know what I mean? It's like not really necessary, but it's, it's just going above and beyond. That's what I thought it was, that Jesus is just going out of his way to lower himself and tell his disciples how much he loves them. But something jumped out at me this week, and it's that, John doesn't really emphasize the act of foot washing as much as he emphasizes the example that Jesus sets in foot washing. Uh, he, he finishes the foot washing part, and then he says, you call me teacher, and you're right. You call me Lord, and you're right. No, that's what I am. I set an example that you would follow. So here's the second thing I want to tell you this morning. I think the act of love Jesus showed his disciples in these last, this is maybe 12 hours before Jesus is moving towards crucifixion, before he is arrested and being grilled and imprisoned. In this last meal before his disciples, Jesus was showing them one more time how much he, loves for, he loved them. And the most loving thing that Jesus could do was to show them one more time what you do with power was to show them one more time the life that we're making. Friends, we have a tendency to confuse the ingredients with the results. We have a tendency to confuse the ends with the means. Here's what I mean by that. Have you ever, like, anybody athletes here? 
or used to be athletes? Okay, a couple of you. All right. Have you ever played sports with somebody who wanted to score more than they wanted to win? Yeah, right? Like someone, someone who's going to take the three instead of making the extra pass so that the team can make a good play and win, right? Right? Someone who has the ends confused with the means because the point of the sport, the point of the game is to win, not to score. This is March Madness. There are a whole lot of teams that lost that had one player who really showed out during the game because you can get the ends confused with the means. I want to tell you, Jesus was reminding his disciples what the ends are because it is so common. Listen, this is a temptation that you will face. You have faced and you will continue to face throughout your life to fold Jesus into what you're already doing to help you more effectively achieve the goals that you've set for yourself, to help you get Christian rich, to help you get Christian comfortable, to help you get Christian successful, to help you get Christian whatever you're pursuing. We face this temptation all the time. And the crazy thing is it gets spiritualized and preached. Jesus is making you serve right now so he can glorify you later. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was glorified in his service of his disciples. What did Jesus do with his power? He did the most shameful job you could think of. Why? Because service isn't an in, a means to an end. Service is the end itself. Service is the life that you were called for, friends. The things you have are the means. The power of Jesus was the means by which he served those he loved. The things that you have in this world are the means by which you accomplish the thing, the life God is making for you, the life God is making through you and with you. And that life is a life of service and love and sacrifice. Can I tell you something? I get so stuck in this sometimes. This is such a temptation for me because I convince myself, Jesus, if I, if I serve you now, if, if I do the hard work now, if, if I put other people first now, then you'll owe me one. And you can elevate me later. But that's the opposite of the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus was elevated, lowered himself. And even in Philippians 2, when it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather lowered himself, becoming a, ser a man and a servant, and death, and death on the cross, it doesn't say he elevated himself. It says because of this, the Lord elevated him. Because service is the life you were created for. You know that scripture teaches us that the glory, the greatest thing, the most glorious thing Jesus did was to die for us. Was to serve and to sacrifice. How do we know the power and the goodness and the glory and majesty of Jesus? Because we know him on the cross. The life you were created for, the thing that you're longing for, is a life of service and a life of sacrifice, a life of forgiveness. Listen, we do not forgive. And I'm going to make this point every way I can think of, illustrate it any way I can think of, because I believe that we've got this endemic toxic belief that is killing us. And there are a lot of people who are finding something they thought was Christian unfulfilling. And it's not because Jesus was unfulfilling. It's that they confused a Christianized version of the ways of the world with faith in Jesus. 
But since the ways of the world are unfulfilling, even if we label them or flavor them Christian, they will always be unfulfilling until we realize that it is a different way. Jesus is not an ingredient to the life you are longing for. Jesus is a new life altogether. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of living. There's actually, I said I'm going to illustrate this as many ways as I can, as many times as I can, and this might get redundant, but I think it's worth it because this is so important. I'm not going to name names here, but there are really popular sermons that I see floating around social media fairly often that say things like this. Jesus has you in a season of anonymity. Jesus has you in a season of serving other people. And because you're in this season of serving other people, he's preparing you so he can elevate you later. You're in your season of being anonymous so that God can prepare you for the position that he has you for you. But I want to tell you that when Jesus was prepared for the position that God had for him, that position was on the cross. <laughs> that position was sacrifice and love and service for those who were his enemies. The place of anonymity is the place of Jesus. The place of service and sacrifice is the place of fulfillment, friends. The... the <laughs> When Jesus elevates someone who used to be anonymous, he elevated them because they didn't want to be elevated, not because they were being prepared for a position. He elevates people who won't use that position for power and for their own reputation. He elevates people who don't want to be elevated. And yes, some other people get elevated who wind up creating toxic cultures around them. But listen, the fulfilling thing God has called you to, the, fulfilling, the life you are seeking is a life of service and sacrifice and love. And if you have wealth, then that is the means by which you serve. And if you have influence, that is the means by which you serve. And if you've got a blue check on your Instagram, then that is the means by which you serve. The things you have are the ingredients to help you create the life God's called for you. It's not the other way around. It's not the other way around. Now, I, I usually kind of go pretty light on the application side of things in a sermon because I think it's really important for us to do the work of applying scripture to ourselves. I don't think it's helpful all the time for me to say, you need to do this, this, and this. I think it's a lot more formative for me to say, Lord, that truth was for me, what do I do about it? So today I just have two questions for you in terms of application. The first is this. Are you willing to let Jesus gently lovingly, compassionately, with kindness, not condescension in his voice, come to you and say, let's make something different. Are you willing to let Jesus say, because he loves you, that thing you're pursuing is not going to fulfill you? Let me teach you the way. Let me teach you my way. Let me teach you a different way. Listen, that hurts. That's a hard truth. There were a lot of times where Jesus said something difficult and people just walked away. And his disciples asked him about it and he was like, yeah, that was a hard truth. <laughs> because it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be fulfilling. Right? It's supposed to be fulfilling. It's supposed to be the life you were created for. That wasn't easy. It was never supposed to be easy. 
Will you let Jesus love you enough to put aside the things you've been pursuing and offer you something better? Here's the second question. Will you let Jesus serve you? You remember, foot washing was gross. It was shameful. <laughs> and listen, there are, there are so many of us. And this, this way of thinking gets like deeply entrenched into our being sometimes, is that we don't even realize that we're thinking, Jesus, no, I'm too dirty. You can't do that. That would be gross. Well, Jesus, let me, let me like clean myself up a little bit, and then I'll trust you, because I, you, you shouldn't have to help me with this. You, I shouldn't have to trust you with this. Let me get this taken care of, and then I'll, then I'll, will you let Jesus serve you? Will you trust that the greatness is the service, that the love of Jesus, the glory of Jesus is in the foot washing, it's in the cross, his glory is in him looking at you and saying, I love you anyway, let me help. His glory is the fact that no other being, no other ruler, no other God has ever been able to just love us as we are without having to get ourselves together beforehand. No other being has ever been able to say, I love you no matter what. That's his glory. He loves you. Will you let Jesus serve you? Have you been withholding? Have you been saying, no, you couldn't actually love me. Let me get some stuff. I don't really want to trust you yet. Have you been holding back part of your heart from the Lord because you feel like for some reason it's too dirty, it's too much, it's too shameful? Let Jesus get his glory by serving you. Don't take the glory of Jesus from him. His glory is in his unconditional love. His glory is in a lot of things. But do you know how he showed us his glory forever? On the cross. On the cross. That was his final statement to us for all eternity. That he loves us as we are right now. Let Jesus love you by offering you something different. Let Jesus love you by serving you right now. Jesus, we thank you that your glory is in the way you love and you sacrifice for us. We thank you that your glory and your goodness is such that you do not need us to put ourselves together or prove something to you. That you have proven what needed to be proved and we believe and trust and follow. Thank you, Jesus, that you invite us into a different way of living but that every time we mess it up, you forgive us and serve us anyway. Thank you that your kindness and your goodness is so great that you not only forgive us for our sins, but you invite us into a life that's actually fulfilling so we do not have to keep pursuing the same hollow things that have never worked in the past. Jesus, let us not only know your love, but let us tell the story of your love by the way that we find joy and fulfillment in serving and sacrificing and forgiving those around us. Because that is the way that we give you glory. We love you, Jesus. Amen.